everyone, welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 74. Your Story, a place on the internet where we have a chance to have a conversation with some of the people in our lives, find out a little bit more, dig a bit below the surface of some of the interesting people I meet from time to time and think to myself, and this is often the way it is, dear listener, oh, I bet there's a story there. I bet there's a bit more if only we scratch the surface you can find all the other previous episodes over at yourstorypodcast.com and you can also find episode 30 of addendum where i explain what's happening at the moment as we rejig this podcast and get it back underway after the very long hiatus that i had but we've got a show today episode 74 about well It's the migrant story again, isn't it? It's something of a recurring theme I'm starting to notice. I quite like the migrant story because it's all about wanting to go to a better place, looking for opportunities. Here in Australia in June 2015, we have these mandatory detention centres for the refugees who have jumped on boats and come down from Indonesia. And they've been put in these concentration camps and the media aren't allowed to visit and there have been laws passed to prevent anybody who works there from speaking out about what's going down. It's very, very bad. And I don't have any time at all for this sort of behaviour by our government. But refugees at the pointy end are running away from very bad situations. But even migrants as my ancestors were some 130 years ago from Northern Europe, even migrants are wanting to go to a better place. Refugees are just the more extreme version of that. And today's story is another one of these migrant stories. It's a bit of a mix, though. It's a bit of both in this situation. It's running away from a situation that was abhorrent, something that he couldn't tolerate anymore, didn't want to be part of also going to something and hoping for a better life. Leaving Africa and the continent that he loved and all of those amazing things that Africa is about, but also leaving apartheid. And then coming to New Zealand and eventually Australia, but dealing with that disconnect from culture and reconnecting to a new culture. And like I said, occasionally I meet people and I think there's a bit more there that I'd like to find out about. And about 12 months ago, we were at a conference together, and after a few conversations, I realised that there was more to this story if I just took the time to sit down and have a yarn to Ian and hear his story. It's early December 2014. We're sitting in a rather lovely apartment on one of the northern beaches, not quite at the beach, a little bit inland here in Sydney. Mm. Introduce yourself. Uh, my name's Ian Cook. I've been in Sydney for the last 
coming up to three years and it's become a home from home. I absolutely adore Sydney. I think of all the places that I'd want to be in Australia, it's here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, I have to say. And you've been a few places, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Where have you lived? I was born in South Africa, but when I was 28, we left um, at the height of apartheid and um, in a hurry um, because... And we used... My wife and myself, we were married at that time, and um, the whole idea was to to avoid conscription, although I had done my national service, um, it was obligatory outside of that or jail, um, but towards the end of that period when apartheid was getting worse and the issues were getting more extreme, we needed to get out quickly because I was not going to go back into the army or the navy in my case. Even so, even though you'd done NASHO, there's an obligation to go back, mm, was it? No, yeah, okay. you do. So you, I did two years in the navy. What part um, of South Africa? Cape Town. And I went to the University of Cape Town. And then after that, conscripted. Um, you either had to go before you know, university or after into the Navy. And we left in a hurry and got to New Zealand. And we lived there for three years. What part of New Zealand? Wellington. Oh, OK. Lovely. By Auckland. Heard. Yeah, no, Wellington's a nice place. Not, the, great, not the best weather, but no. <laughs> <very> great. <laughs> on, a, on a beautiful day, it's idyllic. On a windy day, it's vicious. Harsh, it's harsh. Is it, is it like Sydney? Is it a bit of a no. harbour town? It's a harbour town, but it's... It has some similarities. Auckland is more like Sydney, um, but it's a very small and a very, I found it very insular. I'm sure it's moved on since then. But Wellington and New Zealand was a respite from, I suppose, the rigours of the apartheid system. Um, but they were also very difficult years because I don't think you, you realise as an immigrant what the challenges, challenges are going to be of a new life in a new country until you get there. And my wife was a, is a paediatric dentist specialist and the New Zealand authorities, when I'd gone on a scouting trip, had said that she could practice because she had Commonwealth qualifications. And when we got there, they refused them. Oh. Um, they then lost her papers and she was a stateless person almost in New Zealand for the best part of a year. So it was extremely hard. Here was this very intelligent, bright woman who now all of a sudden couldn't do anything. You weren't allowed to take any money out of any substance out of South Africa. It was extremely hard. Only yourself to rely on. We knew very few people in Wellington. But I got a really good job with BP and they moved us from Wellington after three years to Australia. It's a common story like what happened to your wife. I've met many cab drivers who are doctors mm. and engineers mm. and accountants. Huge qualifications. But in India, mm. so it's not recognised here. No. And uh, I can't imagine how difficult that must be for them to go on doing this menial task. Mm. You know, take nothing away from cab drivers. Mm. It's an extraordinary job, really, mm. in some ways, but it's certainly not engineering. No, it's not. And they've just got to do anything yeah. to survive. Oh, it was extremely hard. She landed up working in a shop, um, selling clothes, a receptionist in one of the companies that BP had for a while. But they were extremely extremely hard years and the impulse of course was well if I can't work then what about having children and the hardest part I suppose as an immigrant is if you haven't got the cash and if you're a man like I am where you want to provide a wealthy mm. family we had no money at all we rented a house I had a job which was a good one very good one it really kick-started my career but um, the pressure to have children was extreme and caused so you, huge tension in the marriage massive right, tension. right out of the frying pan into the fire in a lot of ways. Like, it was worse in some respects because mm. you 
didn't have your family, I imagine you didn't have all that support of your mm. native culture. Mm. Do you regret that you had left South Africa? Yes, I, th I think f initially, I think for the first six months, you talk about homesickness, it is a sickness. You feel it in your gut. And what's familiar and what's real and what's known is no longer there. So you cast adrift in circumstances where your survival is not clear at all. And they, they were extremely tough times. Um, yeah, I did think of coming back, but the reality was I couldn't because after a couple of months in New Zealand, there was a Bureau of State Security like the KGB spy in Wellington keeping track on the ANC people and he found out... Um, the South African organisation. Yeah, he's a spy. He was a spy. And he found out that I was there and they sent me a call up in the mail. Now, nobody knew I'd left South Africa. Yeah, nobody. Not officially. I left as a tourist. But, but, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you had a passport and they would have known that you'd left at some level. Well, yeah, I guess. But we left as tourists. Okay. I, I, took, I didn't immigrate. So, so you didn't have a shipping container full of cars and No, nothing. We had suitcases when we got and, to New Zealand. you know, a, a case of Krugerrands? No, hell no. We didn't have the money for that then. We lived with literally suitcases and I think equivalent of about $2,000. That was it. Wow. Okay. So in a lot of ways, refugee. Yeah, not, I said, I haven't, not quite, well, not quite. Well, politically, yes. I mean, I could no longer support the apartheid system. Um, but I had a great education and computer science degree, and, and I had a job. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, there was a political reason why I left. And, and then once this call-up, which they sent to me just to let me know, well, we know where you are. I was therefore absent without leave. So until the end of apartheid in 1994, back from 1988, six years, if I'd have gone back to South Africa, I would have gone to jail. And would so, that have been an uncomfortable jail? Or would it have been oh, I, it would have been equivalent of a South American, you know, oh. Turkish jail equivalent. Oh. sort of situation. Yeah, not fun. I mean, any jail's not fun, but South African jails with the South African police at the time were not, were not much fun. And I would never have, have wanted that. I couldn't have done that for my, you know, for my wife's sake or for mine. But it just meant that I couldn't go back and therefore it made a certain finality, didn't it? And then my career was really exploded in New Zealand, much to my benefit, but not to my wife's, who couldn't practice as a dentist. And it put unbelievable pressure on the marriage. They were the unhappiest years of my entire marriage. And there were 20 very unhappy years with her, I suppose, but they were the worst. And did um, you think that in regards to the relationship, it would have been different if she had had a career and a mm, job? Oh, immensely different. We probably wouldn't be divorced today, I think. You know, the same happened when we eventually got to Australia because BP eventually posted me to Australia to look after BP or to run BP's lubricants manufacturing distribution business here in Australia. That was when life really took off because the job was superb. We were on expat terms in Australia and we lived very, very comfortably. We were certainly back to the material well-being that I'd known in Cape Town. This is in Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah, so we moved to Melbourne. We'd had a son in New Zealand. My wife had actually returned... Whilst we were in New Zealand to go back to her family, I didn't think the marriage was going to last, and she asked to come back, and I do not know to this day how our elder son was conceived, but he was, when she came back and said, look, please, can we continue with this relationship? So, so she was going to return to South yeah. Africa? Yeah, no, well, back to Mexico. She's Mexican. Oh, OK. My wife was, ex-wife was Mexican. So there really was a, um, you know, was a cultural divide, there was a, a religious divide, there was, um, you know, a huge... Gulf, and then we accepted to move into this this immigration environment purely in response to the political situation in South Africa. I was third generation. I would never have wanted to leave, but apartheid was 
unconscionable, but neither, to be quite honest, did I wish to live under and spend the rigours of the rest of my life and my children's working for corrupt black governments, which of course has been the case. The ANC is deeply corrupt and of course it looks going to happen. So, you know, I'm realistic about the state of African politics. Let's not, this is not... Do you a, still follow? I don't, Ian, um, and yet I do. I, 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 I can't affect it, I can't influence it, I know what it is. Um, I've left, and in fact I don't get involved in political debate much anywhere because it's a short circuit of emotion. Mm. You know? do you, what, what's your nationality now? I'm Australian. Uh, do you still have South African? No. Right, oh, you completely, forfeited Absolutely. Do you have to forfeit that? No, I chose to. Right. Okay. I had no intention to look back. Okay. And we never mixed with South African expats in all the years that we were away pretty much. We always got close to the local population. I lived in Portugal for five years and I learned Portuguese and I've got lots of Portuguese friends. I've met quite a few South Africans over the years and they've all said how fortunate they are to be in Australia and mm. how much they love it. Mm. But I don't know much about South Africa. Mm. The, the apartheid, you know, we had protests against the rugby teams going over there and you know, there's all this stuff going on back in the day, but I don't know a lot of the, the long arc of the history of, mm. of South Africa and, and some of that context of why you left and the atrocities and apartheid. Mm. Want to fill us in on what you experienced on um, on what you saw and, and why you wouldn't have liked to have stayed and why you had to leave? Mm. Well, I, I'll start with why I'd like to stay. It is the most beautiful country ever in, in, in the sense that there is so much geographical diversity. Uh, it's deeply, it's, I'm very, Afri once Africa gets into your soul, it's a landscape that does something to you. And being third generation and coming more recently from Cape Town, which is so much to do culturally, you know, outside in terms of the natural environment, very beautiful. And you don't underestimate the power of your own culture, the knowledge of knowing where you fit into that society and how it works and how it shakes and how you can survive. And you um, haven't moved to a radically different culture. It's not as though you're in Abu Dhabi. Any culture uh, is a radically different one. Nothing is familiar other than the language. We lived in Portugal for five years and I was actually more comfortable in Portugal than I was in London. Oh, really? Absolutely. The cultural standards... So the, Portugal is more similar to the South African culture than, than the British culture is? Um, no, but, the, but because you're united by English and you, you mix pretty much with English-speaking people initially, although I c can speak or could speak Portuguese, there was a kind of sense of community and camaraderie amongst expats. But if you live in London, you're just yet another person. And by the way, you're an ex-colonial. So in terms of the, the society I lived in within London and what I did for British Petroleum, I wasn't a red brick Oxford Cambridge University graduate and the class system was very alive and mm. real. So any culture is difficult to move into. But having said that, you also go hell for leather to make sure that you do it. And we certainly did that over the years. We were very good experts. We never complained, we never moaned. We're very grateful. And, you know, to answer the question, why Australia? And why, why we love it here? Because I don't think Australians understand the privilege of freedom. The freedom of political discourse, the freedom of movement, the freedom of, from fear, the freedom from fear of crime and violence. Um, the freedom of an environment that is still benign, whether it'll stay that way, I'm pretty sure it won't, but for now it is. Um, there are no racial tensions to speak of in Australia, but they're brewing. 
This is beginning to feel like South Africa was in the 80s. So Africa was that tough? Africa does not allow you the indulgence of sitting on a fence. Africa is a violent but beautiful place. You, you, there is no grey position to take in Africa. You either one view or the other. It is extremely, extremely diverse in the realities of that, so that continent. You're you a, a gentle soul from my observation, having met you at the Do Lectures back mm. in April. But does that mean that sometimes even those of us who are mild-mannered have to be strong completely. in ways that we don't completely. want to be? Completely. Does that involve things like arming? And of course it does. I mean, we've all no, been no, to no. the army. Of course doesn't make sense to me. Mm. That, that, those two words do not make sense in, to me. In that context, you have no option because you come down the Maslow hierarchy by five ranks. All of a sudden, you're faced with day-to-day -day survival. If I was in South is, Africa... It's really now, that bad. Oh, it is. If I went outside now, um, the security of my house would be five times what it is here. I'd have guards on the door and I'd probably be armed. I would be cautious when I went to traffic lights to see if someone is going to hijack my car. Um, violence is epidemic and ubiquitous. Um, you've got no idea how the basics of life are compromised by crime and violence. And an atmosphere of that is tangible. You get off the aeroplane, you smell it. There, there is something in the air that is ominous and violent. And Africa is like that from top to bottom, in the big cities, more so than in the country. You're back to survival. This is like living in Syria. So what's that like for the everyday functionality of white people like us in South Africa? Does it, does you it... watch your back wherever you go. You walk out the door, you lock, you control every aspect of your security. If, you've, if you're coming home and you, and you live with neighbourhood watch areas, security police, which are you pay for, they're private security guards, you watch who's walking down the street, you watch who's tailing you because you open your garage door and you're in and they've got a gun to your head and it's typically violent crime. can't tell you how many of my friends have had dis deeply violent events happen to them by violent break-ins or hijackings and it's been incredibly brutal. Africa and the price of life is unbelievably cheap and do not say that the African culture is all wrong and all terrible environment. It isn't. It's incredibly generous and lovely, but by God, it can be violent just like that. Yeah. And the African cultures are used to violence as a way of projecting power. Is this the way it's always been? Like, no. Do you think this is no. the, the native African culture, or is this the end result of apartheid, or is no. it just the pressures of human population? It's the pressures of poverty. It's not apartheid. Uh, if you look to the African countries to the north, the whole of the African story and the whole of human history has been one of violence. It's been one of, of power and might is right. And it's poverty related. It's no different anywhere else. But in the African context, because the violence has been politically acceptable for millennia, the tribal system is the basis upon which it justifies crime and justifies violence. You're supporting your clan, your tribe. It's become part of the culture. It's no different if you go to many parts of the world as well where the tribal systems like still exist. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. But you cannot, you cannot sit in the fence in Africa. You have to take a view of your survival and it's much more visceral and more real and it's way down the, the hierarchy. So when you come to a country like Australia, when we talk about having the freedom and peace to walk outside without locking your house or not looking over your shoulder as a woman or getting on a bus or a train after 10 o'clock at night or actually walking anywhere um, even on a mountain or even on a hiking trail unless you're armed. 
And even then, there's all sorts of debates about whether you should be or shouldn't. There is a freedom in Australia that you don't even get in London and the UK. So, And this goes back to when you were in South Africa in the 80s? It was like that back then? Mm, and it got worse after we left. The crime exploded after we left. It, and you've heard this through your friends and colleagues? Oh, and I've seen it. Um, when I've gone back... Oh, I, you've gone back in recent years? Yes, after apartheid ended, I could go back. Oh, okay. Yeah, because then there was no was longer... Was that a relief? Yes, it was. I still love it hugely. I, I, I would still call it my spiritual home. Africa gets into your soul, especially Cape Town. Is it like slipping on old slippers? Mm, very much. They're just, I'm back home. Yeah, no, it right. is. And I'm sure it's the same for most people who leave. There's a very strong pull of home. No, but I could go back. But after the end of apartheid, nobody, no political commentator, none of us picked the crime. None of us. We just thought, okay, you know, black government would come in and the ANC would get into power and then things would be good. They didn't pick the corruption and they didn't pick the crime. And they didn't pick the ANC's reaction to crime, which was just another form of white taxation. Because the, the police basically said, well, we'll just go after the whiteies, and they did. Mm-hmm. But they also went after wealthy black people. And please, I don't want to cast this in too different a light. Most of the violence in South Africa or Africa is black on black crime. It is not black on white. Is it simply because it's more black? Yes, and also because the whites can afford better security. Oh, okay. But it's, it's not targeted at white people. It's again... It's targeted this is the big, where the money is. Exactly, you got it. Yeah. African politics, or again, to come back, these are the politics of poverty. It's he who has versus he who does not. And it, ha- it has no racial barrier, pretty much. Mm. So, you know, to come to Australia and to put our roots down here after, uh, you know, many years away from Australia, actually, because BP posted us to London and for 10 years and then Portugal for five on different occasions. This was the country to come back by choice. We could have stayed in the UK and become European. So I take it you've had a pretty good look around the world. And yeah, I have, yeah. And I've travelled to just about every part you can imagine, too much travel. Um, You're a bit over it, are you? Oh, completely over it. Business travel is not much fun. And there really is a, a sense of being so tired and so relieved to be here and doing what I'm doing now, which is not travelling. So, yes, I mean, there are only two countries I would live in, Canada or Australia, and Canada's too cold. It's not a country where uh, I think it would be completely easy for younger people. I still think Australia's a land of opportunity. The last country in the world I would live in is America. just would never live there. Do you think New Zealand's a good place? I do, but it's so small, and I think if you have a bigger worldview, you know, the island mentality creeps in and you've got to get out of New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, it's too small, it's too insular, the people are very inward-looking, there's not enough scale, there's not enough sizes, you know. And it's also at the end of the world. It is. Yeah. You don't feel you're part of it. Yeah. Whereas we're sort of next door to the end of the world. Yes, Australia. that's right. There's a huge part of South African culture which I wasn't fully aware of, and that is that it's not just black and white, it's white and black and white. Mm. There's two white elements. And back in 1899, the Australian military forces, I don't know what they were called, the British military, I don't know what they were called because it was pre-Federation, went to the Boer War Mm. in uh, South Africa. Mm. I still remember the Boer War veterans in in the cars when I was in scouts back in the 60s. Old, old men. And that's part of Australian history. And and that linked on to World War I, which Mm. we're now in the hundreds you know, the centenary of right mm. now as we mm. speak, as we mm. record this in 2014. Mm. What is this whole um, Afrikaans English thing? Because it's something I don't know anything about. Mm. Well, the most simple way of explaining it, it's like, it's like Ireland, the Protestants and the Catholics. It's as dis- 
you, you, it's, you think it's one place, but it's not. There's actually two distinct cultures. The Dutch culture was the first to occupy the Cape province um, in 1652, and then over the years, the Brits, with all their imperial conquests or the wars that ebbed and flowed, Gun, took over the Cape. diplomacy, as they love to use. Yeah. Ultimately. But there, were, there was a settlement, and the Dutch ceded the Cape of Good Hope to the British. And the, the British moved in and essentially imposed British rule on this Dutch colony, and primary of which was to say, no more slaves, chaps. And the Dutch basically said, well, stuff you. And where were the slaves coming they, from? They'd, no, they'd come over from... Uh, from Malaysia, they'd come through from um, parts of uh, Indonesia even. Um, the Dutch were the big slave traders. So does so, that explain why there is such a large Indian and Asian? Yes. Well, the, the Indians are more indentured labourers. Cape Malays are still a very inf- well, large part of the community. They, they've been called the Cape Coloured People. They're mixed pretty much between the, the white and the black over the and century. And Gandhi associated with these people. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. So they were a big community, and the Dutch settlers basically said, stuff you, and went inland and, and filled a space which was not filled with black tribes at that time. They met up in the north at a place called the Fish River, close to Port Elizabeth. So it really was terra nullis at that time in terms of filling the space in the land. But the distinctions between English and Afrikaans went back to that day. And, of course, by the time the Dutch popped up again, they kind of had 200 years odd of developing their own culture around biblical traditions, um, Old Testament. They really believed that they were God's chosen tribe or chosen race or chosen people for Africa. And the whole of the Dutch Reformed Church underpinnings of apartheid come from the, the religious views that these Dutch Afrikaners as they came so to be known. So apartheid comes from the Afrikaners rather than the English? Yeah, oh, completely. Apartheid, oh. apartheid as, a, as a political system was built purely um, by the Dutch Reformed Church and the Nationalist Party. That's not to say that the Brits didn't see segregation between black and white as part of their, their colonial history. They did, but they didn't as much enforce the legalities of it as, as the Nationalists did in 1948 when they got into power. They popped up around about 1880, 1890 in the Transvaal with gold. And the Brits basically said, oh, we'd like some of that, please. And there were diamonds. Cecil John Rhodes was the diamond king. And so essentially what you could say was that the first and second Boer Wars, Anglo-Boer Wars, were fought over control of resources. The Brits basically trumped up charges to say, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of English settlers mining Johannesburg gold mines and we want them to have political clout and say and Dutch said no they said you know we're Afrikaans and we'll run it and you won't give them the vote and so they didn't they win a war and the Boer War was very hardly fought um, and very brutal the Brits brought in concentration camps for the first time and there were stories of atrocities and very much slash and burn policy and eventually they defeated them at huge cost to the British Empire and they were the first time the Brits were ever whacked in any colonial expedition. So there was a huge amount of animosity which extended and still extends to this day. When I went into the army, you know, you're still fighting the Boer War. If you're a Dornus Engelsmann or a blasted Englishman, the Afrikaners really went after you and this was like nearly 100 years later. Lots of animosity and a very different cultural tradition both you know, mentally and, and religiously. But they also, in 1948, got into power and populated government. And, of course, they had the farms. So the English did the business, and, and the Dutch Afrikaans people did the farms and the government from 1948 onwards and stayed in power all that time. And basically, you sort of got on together because it was 
you were you know a white population with having to basically keep a country running and with a large black population which were disenfranchised and under the nationalist government so the black population is the native population that was already in the area yeah or moved into the areas and then of course as apartheid became stronger whether you're english or afrikaans you're conscripted into the army because it was you know because it was there to keep the system as it was at the time enforced and entrenched so yes a lot of animosity between english and afrikaans very different culturally if you play to the stereotype dull not particularly well educated initially in political power and they abused it they really did they had something called the bruderbund which put the black which put afrikaans people into government jobs and influence and over time much to their credit the afrikaner people changed their mind the dutch reformed church actually said the apartheid was a sin eventually they led the way out of the apartheid as much as they did the way in and i have respect for what i never thought they do because i thought they would take us to civil war i was convinced they would and they didn't they they blinked and i do think that it was a miracle that the political settlement was had without a war i did not pick that in i didn't pick it it's wonderful so that's, to see that's another one of those revolutions that didn't go hot mm. um, i've been talking to a lot of people about as as systems collapse you know we had this discussion the other night you know pitchforks and flaming torches yeah. uh, i hadn't thought that yeah south africa is another one that worked it did know, work and war. it's probably the only one that that has worked where an immensely powerful white minority armed to the back teeth with a very good army and lots of really good weapons i mean it, it was at one stage the seventh largest arms exporter in the world and very innovative technology especially for iuds or you know roadside bombs we'd be fighting a very dirty terrorist war but let's never forget that the biggest story of that era for my generation was fighting against the communist threat in angola and mozambique and a surrogate for the cold war we were a surrogate army on behalf of the americans in the cia fighting in angola and in mozambique and others this meant that we were of benefit to the west plus the natural resources of south africa are absolutely huge and there's some key minerals that the rest of the world distinctly needed so south africa was needed by the rest of the world and a surrogate cold war was fought not to maintain apartheid as much as to keep the west the primary influence in southern africa and the cape of good hope so that that's a war whose whose history is yet to be told completely it wasn't primarily a black and white war this was one against the, the communist khafar which was the communist danger and this was the propaganda of the time so when i grew up i really did believe the communists were baddies like we all did in the past yeah. is there animosity between the uh, afrikaans and the english no. whites still there it's sort of there but it's it's i think after the end of apartheid it's mellowed afrikaner has disappeared in terms of its radical bruderbund you know far far right element and the afrikaners that have stayed have stayed for the same reasons that english people have stayed because they love it and because their families are there and lots of afrikaans people have left and they were supposed to be more nationalistic than Eng- english you know so i think there's less animosity today the army doesn't divide or they're not in government there's more acceptance English people always resisted the nationalist government. I hated the Afrikaner. I swear in when I was a young man in in the 80s if you'd have given me an AK47 and a wall full of Afrikaners I would have blown them away. I would have I would have pulled the trigger and killed the bastards. But it's over now. Yeah. They were the most arrogant prats who led us into the depths of what apartheid perpetrated and deprived me of my birthright to stay in the country of my birth and I'm third generation. So you pre-dark about having been virtually forced out of South Africa? 
I'm sad I had to go. I'm not, sad. not angry? Yeah, I have been angry, but I'm no longer. It is what it is. Would I want to go back now? No. Because crime has simply replaced, you know, the worst parts of apartheid. And, and they've, the ANC have instituted apartheid as much. If you're a white person, you are actively discriminated against now. If I had white kids back in South Africa, there is no future for them. And it's on the statute books, but it's fine. The rest of the world sits by and says, fine, as long as black people can be corrupt and do what they want to do, that's fine by us. But it's not. They've, they have actually implemented apartheid themselves, legal. So if I could wave my magic wand and make South Africa an egalitarian society, would you go back? Or have you moved on so much that Australia is now completely your home? Mm. I would go back if I felt that the longer term political and economic future yes, could yes. safeguard... Well, that's fine. I'd go that's back fine. tomorrow. Oh, OK. If, so, if, so my, you, if the health system, the yeah. taxation, well, and there wasn't good. crime and violence, I'd go back in a flash. Oh, OK. To Cape Town. Nowhere else. Only to Cape Town. Because Cape Town is still a hub of Western culture in Africa. Okay. And it's completely unique. You still have that love for South Africa that I, would take you back. And you haven't completely come over, come over to the Australian side in that sense. It's only I, because South Africa is as it is you're here. Yeah. I mean, what holds me in South Africa with my children, my boys, I do love Australia and I do love Sydney and I am very happy here. But this is a choice of lifestyle and it's a choice of going back to your roots. And if, if all things were equal, I don't think immigrants leave because they want to necessarily. I certainly didn't. I, le I left because I had to. And as much as I love it here, if all things were equal, it, it's an easier country to live in South Africa. It's much cheaper. Australia is incredibly expensive and Africa is so beautiful. There is something about it. Mm. It's the animals, it's the sky, it's the light, it's the, it's the bush, it's the sense of freedom. And you can get that here. But Australia can be quite monotonous. It's so big and it's so flat. And it's actually quite homogenous. And I've travelled you know, enough to see it. Africa is so diverse in such a small period. And if you love the outdoors like I do, and you love the, the sort of natural environment around you, it's, it's very beautiful. You landed in Melbourne, but now you're in Sydney. Why haven't you gone to Darwin or Perth? Why, why Sydney? Two reasons. I think Sydney is as beautiful as Cape Town is. It's, it's, you know, the, all the bays and all the parks and the harbour and, and the rest of it. It's more... Melbourne is intensely bland. It, it is a city of flat, 50 by 150 socialist blocks, if you want to call them that. You know, they said no one's supposed to be any big... And it's just it's so bland. It's just... The stick spreads out. There's no, if you like the outdoors, it takes you two hours to get to the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, whereas Sydney is a beautiful, beautiful place. And there's more, there's more potential here. I left also at the end of my divorce because I wanted to get away. And I knew some people here. Um, and my job allowed me to move. But I came for the beauty. And I came because this was the Cape Town of Australia, oh, to okay. be quite honest. And it is. It's the most gorgeous place. You were working for BP for a long time. What did mm. you do after that? I left 10 years ago and joined World Vision and World Vision International. And I worked as a as the head of their global relationships with big corporations and companies. Because you'd come out of BP, you yeah. understood that culture. That's right. Okay. So where, where did World Vision take you? Oh, Philippines, Indonesia, um, parts of uh, other parts of Asia, uh, Africa. Um, all over Finland, um, lots into this into Seattle, but also where the big companies were. So not all of it was rough travel. Angola was a tough place, 
but it was from a very different perspective. So from big company operations and being very influential and I suppose senior in big oil companies to look at it from a, a social perspective and to look at it from a different was incredibly challenging. It was very good. I think I, I, I learned a lot. But I'm also much more conscious now of how difficult it is to move into the NGO environment. And I've been disillusioned, I think, by a lot of what I've seen within inside that environment. You know, you think it's all going to be efficient and good and people care for each other and all the rest of it. And it's going to be less political. Well, none of those are necessarily true. In fact, right. if anything, it's the opposite. So the warm and fuzzy stuff that we all hear about the NGOs and the, the charities, it doesn't necessarily no, come through? No. You have very principled, very dogmatic people about what they call their sort of purpose and calling. And because the dollar doesn't determine the outcome of a decision necessarily, politics does. It's, do I have more power than you? Can I push my project over and above yours? And by the way, I'm not going to accept your authority because, of course, I'm a volunteer or I'm working for an NGO. And unless my heart and mind agrees with what you with what you're saying, I don't feel I'm beholden to do what you tell me, just because you're my boss. So coming from a company environment, there's no effective governance in many cases. It's a very chaotic situation um, to work in. So yeah, it can be interesting to see the, con the difference. But what I did love about it was that you're in pursuit of something good for a social benefit and a social outcome. Coming from the African background I've done, you cannot but not want to respond to the broader social issues of life. And that's where I am. Even is is today. that what you're doing now? I'm going to find my way back into that. Um, I'm not working at the moment. I finished working for a company who was working in the NGO sector. And I think I'll find my way back in. But I I'll do so from a more commercial perspective. The idea of a social venture is something I'm more interested in. And I'll see where that leads me. Not all the not-for-profits calling out for good management, good leadership, effective fundraising and efficient operations because they're not particularly efficient. How inefficient are they? They can't afford the best people and so the monkeys and peanuts analogy kind of works. But there's a lot of waste with inside their systems. They're not supposed to invest in good infrastructure. They're not supposed to spend money on, on cost. It's a contradiction because unless they have got a decent infrastructure, they can't be efficient. Um, but you're not supposed to spend money on infrastructure, so they never quite get there. So there's that kind of dichotomy of, of expectation. But you also what happens is that there's no middle management tier. There's no middle age tier. What I mean by middle age is you get young people coming in, maybe 28, 29, they realise they can't afford to stay in the not-for-profit sector. And then you get folks like myself who come in when they're 45 or so who can afford to come in because they have alternative income. So in that middle area, just no people of deep experience, and that's really what keeps corporations running. It's not people at the top, it's the people in the engine rooms. And they aren't always there. So for lots of structural reasons, the NGOs are not particularly efficient. But they do wonderful things, and they do great stuff. Is there a form of NGOs out there that rely on a business model? So they go out and they produce saleable goods? Yeah, they do. That sanitarium is owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for example, and there are lots of good examples. That's a social venture. And that one's been around 100 years. Yeah, it has. So yes, there are, and there are lots of NGOs in Australia now, the sort of blood tests and all the sort of uh, tests that doctors will give are outsourced now to operations which are owned by charities who turn a profitable turn and that's what you would expect and hope. I mean I've learned that unless something is sustainable in terms of its ability to fund and be profitable, even if it's break-even profitable, it won't last. 
and government. And you can't rely on a charity model. No, well, no, you can't because you know charities are either government grants, which always comes with strings attached, or with donors who, for good reasons and bad, are fickle. But it is the third largest employer of people in Australia right now. Yeah, the not-for-profit sector, after to the mining industry and I forget the tourism. second one, tourism is the third biggest. If you include the volunteers, it's the third largest employer of people. So, what do you? How do you recreate? Recreate? Recreate. What, what do I do for fun? Yeah. Which is actually a really nice spin on the word recreate. Yeah, it is. Because when, nice you go and, when you go and do things for fun, you yeah. recreate yourself to go mm. on to your next part. Yeah, that's true. I walk a lot. I run a lot. Oh, I used to until I Yeah, you myself. did a marathon recently, didn't I you? I did, yeah. That was good. Um, at, at 55? Yeah. That's hardcore. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> I never wanted to do it. I sail. I love to sail. Have you always sailed? Pretty much since I was 16. A lot of people rave about Sydney for sailing and things like that. Was Cape Town like that? It was good sailing? It was good sailing, but it was violently blowy sometimes, so you'd have to be careful. And there weren't that many places to sail to, whereas Sydney Harbour, there are lots of places to sail to. Up in, up in Pitwater, it's the same. You've settled here. You're not going back to South Africa. No. Things aren't going to change there. No, the they aren't. Your next period is? Putting my roots down in, in a place where in five years' time I have a sense of community. With all my travels and all the places we've stayed, they've been great, but my network is not here. I have wonderful friends all over the world, and that's the problem. <laughs> They're all over the world. So I really want to put my roots down here. I've joined Rotary. I'm going to find my way into more community involvement, be more ecologically balanced than, than, I, than I've been in the past. And I want to surround myself with a few beautiful things and a few things of objects that are pleasant but that are not ostentatious or overly materialistic. And the way you've decorated this apartment is, is uh, exemplary of that. Some oh. very nice things here, Ian. Very yeah, nice. Um, nice to be surrounded by some beautiful things. Yeah, I, I think as we've got all clutter, Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And also I think find my way into relationships, friendships, companionships with people because, as you said earlier, it's, it's conversation that counts. And uh, there's an intellectual, philosophical bent to life, then I've always wanted to learn more. You know, this is the age where we men choose to be wise old sages or, or angry old men. And I don't choose to be an angry old man. And I think that there's a, so much to be discovered, there's so much to be had if you just put your mind to it. And you have almost a sense of innocence, a sense of youthful exuberance whether it's reading history or great art or music or getting into the Hawkesbury River and sailing or canoeing down the Amazon. Um, I just hope that I have the health and the wherewithal to be able to do these bucket list things because I've worked really hard in my life. I brought up two fabulous kids uh, and it's my time now. You know. That's right. It's all playtime for us now. I think so. Okay. Ian, thanks for sharing You're welcome. Um, some great conversations and some insight into how life is for somebody else here on your story thanks mate thank you